Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy. Please welcome our writers, Nathan, Eliza, and Gina. How do you want to coordinate this? Should we just improvise? Yeah. yeah. Do you want to go first? It seems like we're there. Oh, okay. I'll go first. Yeah. I mean, so just a few words about the book and then... Uh... Sounds good. Okay. Um, a couple of words about myself and, and so where the book came from. Uh, I am an Iranian Jew. I've lived in L.A. for 30, I don't know, since 1977. So just do the math. Uh, and uh, for many years before that, I lived in Europe. Um this is my fifth novel. Um, the other novels, some are about Iran and Iranian Jews and so on. There is historical fiction, literary fiction, and uh, um, some are not. Um, this novel, uh, and, and, and everything that I ever wrote about or write about is uh, true. It actually happened. The characters are real people. I try to hide the identity as much as I can. But um, this novel is about the Iranian community uh, in L.A. after, you know, the exile community in L.A. for the last, uh, you know, 30-some years after the Iranian Revolution. And um, really it's a story about immigration and uh, um, what it's like to to come from another culture to a city like LA that is not really America. Uh, it's uh, as a friend of mine said, a third world country where many tribes live side by side, uh, but don't really mix. And it's also about LA um, or the way uh, I've seen it. So the piece that I want to that I'm going to read uh, for you. Is uh, uh, takes place toward the end of the book, but it's just a couple of pages that uh, that, that describe the LA that I see every single day, uh, and and really the book is an examination of how much the Iranian presence has changed the city and how much the city has changed the Iranian presence. And people from a very very old culture who've been here 30 years, and all of a sudden a whole lot of stuff changes because of this city and its influence. Um, oh, I should say, I should say, there, uh, this Iranian businessman has been murdered, and right after he pulled off a Ponzi scheme, uh, you know, during this recession, we had a bunch of Ponzi schemers, little Bernie Madoff types, uh, and uh, you know, this question is, who's killed him? Um, I'm going to be frank with you. Je vais vous dire franchement, Angela told Leon. You're out of your depth with this one, and don't know it. Any one of these people, from the riffraff to Lucy to Raphael's son himself, is a world-class villain. They could kill circles around you and you wouldn't be able to do a thing about it. They were sitting outside her favorite hangout in Beverly Hills, a chocolate and espresso shop on the corner of Camden and Brighton, where she had stopped at least once a day for the past 10 years. Angela liked the coffee here, and she also liked watching the, older co the other customers. 
The William Morris Endeavor Agency, directly across the street, employed dozens of young, great-looking, well-dressed interns who spent most of the time walking the agent's dogs or picking up their dry cleaning. Above William Morris Endeavor was a gym with middle-aged men and women, where middle-aged men and women spent four hours a day taking classes with names like Pump and Grind and Core and More, then walked over to the coffee bar for a decaf, non-fat cup of foam with a drop of espresso in it. Among the regulars was an Iranian man well into his 50s who wore shiny silver leggings, these are real people, and neon orange shoes he thought would make him look younger to the girls, an Austrian psychiatrist, real person, who pretended he was Jewish so as not to frighten away potential West Side clients, an Israeli woman who pretended she was English in hopes of impressing a rich old American into marrying her, and an Englishman who pretended he was a duke of one thing or another and went around in a rented Bentley in hopes of finding a rich woman to pay the bills. For a while, he was engaged to an Afghan woman. He found out just before the wedding, pretended she was descended from royalty and went around in a rented Carrera GT in hopes of finding a rich man to pay her bills. I swear, I know all these people. This is also true. On the sidewalk next to them, Karim Islam, the elder statesman of Beverly Hills Panhandlers, was yelling at a man who had refused to give him money. Karim and his wife had just celebrated their 30th anniversary of working, the term they used when speaking to the police, in the city. From the beginning, they each had their designated turf, she on Wilshire Boulevard across from the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, and he on Beverly Drive outside Nathan Al's Deli. Together, they made a decent living, enough to maintain a small apartment in the Pico-Robertson area among all the Orthodox Jews. They also maintained a checking and savings account, and Angela had learned from the public defender who had of late been representing Mr. Islam a number of credit cards. These are the panhandlers. Forever polite, upbeat, and eager to engage in endless intellectual conversation, hence the name given to him by an old Nathan Al regular, Karim had become rude and aggressive over the past year, a result, he confessed, of business pressures having to do with the shrunken revenue stream during the recession. To remedy the slump in earnings, he had abandoned his piece of real estate on the east side of Beverly Drive and relocated outside the parking lot next to the Williams-Sonoma store. When that didn't help, he started walking his wheelchair, he took it around so he'd always have a place to sit, onto neighboring streets. Now he was off his own turf and not getting the kind of respect he was accustomed to, so he started to lose it several times a day. The object of his outrage that day was a tall and heavy and about to walk into the sandwich shop next to the coffee bar when he declined to, as Karim liked to put it, help me have a better day. Retaliating, Karim parked his wheelchair at the entrance to the sandwich shop and was screaming that the man was, quote, too fat and stupid to be eating the mozzarella and tomato sandwiches with spinach. You can pay eight bucks for a sandwich and you don't even need and you don't even need to and you can't give me a buck to buy a coffee, you fat fuck. Angela shook her head. Any minute now, she knew, two cruisers would be pulling up outside the cafe to take Mr. Islam to the station and book him for creating a public nuisance. 
His wife, too, had been picked up a few times in the past year for being overly aggressive with her supporters. When ordered by a judge to move her place of business to another part of the city, the wife had explained that her current location was most convenient because, quote, my husband and I bank there. So I'll stop here. <laughs> On to something different. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, so, uh, Love Maps is uh, it's my second novel, slightly connected to the first, although it's about 100 years after the first. Um, and it's, uh, it's about a whole bunch of things, but I'm just going to read you part of it. The funeral parlor is indeed in a strip mall. A single-story stucco with a shoe store attached to one side and an office supply place on the other. Sarah parks the car and sits behind the wheel, staring at the double doors of the funeral parlor, not wanting to go in. 20% to Tory, 20% to this Philip Clark, 60% to Coningsby's biological family. What does any of that mean? As if you can prove your claim by the mass of ash you carry around. She imagines the funeral director is standing by a table, and on the table is a scale, an old-fashioned double-plated one, like the scales of justice. He's wearing a butcher's apron over his undertaker's black, and he's scooping Coningsby's ashes onto the plate, his glasses halfway down his nose, frowning, shaking his head in holy disgust. She struggles into her black dress, crouching low to avoid the attention of a gang of kids stuffed into a nearby station wagon. A woman with a feather hat walks purposefully towards the funeral parlor, her lips a severe and distinct plum. Sarah's lipstick is too saucy. She wipes it off. A minister is reading from the Bible as she slips into the back row, unoccupied save for a man who seems to be the only other person under 70 in the room. In the row before them, a dozen or so of Coningsby's relatives, pale necks and colorless hair, murmur a prayer. The minister steps down, and the woman with the plum lipstick rises. She makes her way to the podium, heels clicking, the black feathers on her hat bobbing with each step. An uneasy silence settles. Marshall was a brave and principled man. Her eyes home in on Sarah. He would have died for democracy. She says this accusingly, as if Sarah would not die for democracy. Sarah stares back, wondering if she is being overly sensitive. But no, the woman is glaring at her, accusing her of what? Some kind of lack of patriotism? Does she really think that Coningsby would have willingly signed up to die for democracy? The only person Sarah has known who could do such a thing, at least with any grace or intelligence, would have been her father. But he wouldn't have done it for democracy. It would have been an atonement. No, that was putting it too grandly. It would have been revenge. Sweet revenge, Pchinka. Feather Hat continues, her voice breaking, talking about the Verdun and the Huns as if the mud was still red with men's blood. The man beside Sarah looks on with what seems to be polite astonishment. He senses Sarah's glance and turns towards her. He has the handsome, bland face of an anchorman on the nightly news, and she's afraid he's going to shush her, even though she hasn't said anything. Instead, the corner of his mouth lifts into an asymmetrical smile that charms her completely. 
She is overcome with the desire to giggle, which seem, he seems to intuit, for he shakes his head and turns back to Featherhat. At the end of the service, Featherhat marches over to them. I assume you're here to pick up Marshall's ashes. Yes, says the man. I'm Philip Clark. He extends his hand. The woman gives it a cold stare. Follow me. She turns sharply. Philip Clark drops his hand and allows himself a slight raise of the eyebrows. Shall we, he says to Sarah. The woman stomps out of the chapel and down a narrow hallway, the feathers on her hat waving as they follow behind her. They turn a corner and go up some steps. Sarah is surprised. The funeral parlor looked so small from the parking lot. They head down another hallway, fluorescent lights sputtering and crosses dangling and the woman's heels clacking against the tiles. Sarah starts to feel dizzy. What are they doing? They're treating Coningsby like a medieval saint, doling out tibias and fibulas. Only it's worse, the charred remains of tibias and fibulas. She shouldn't be involved in this. She's a Jew, for God's sake. Jews don't believe in relics. But she's not a Jew. It's these crosses. They're making her feel Jewish, or at least nervous. Philip Clark walks by her side, confident and oblivious. She wants to grab his elbow, steady herself. No, it would be too flailing. They enter a sweltering little room, more of a storage closet, and Philip loosens his tie. In the corner, two plastic bags sit askew on an old vinyl armchair. The woman picks one up. Here you go, Mr. Clark. It's a shame that Marshall didn't have any children of his own. She hands him the bag. He palms the contour of the container inside. You must be Mrs. Merriweather, he says. Coningsby often spoke of you. The woman opens her mouth. The space inside is terribly black. Miss, she croaks. Something's happened to her. She sucks in air, gulping it down like she can't get enough. Sarah steps forward to help, but the woman bats her away. Go. Sarah points at the second bag. I need that first. I'm here for Victoria Scraperton. Miss Merriweather grabs the bag. Tell Miss Scraperton that if she had any pride, she'd come here herself. She's a whore. Tell her that. A tramp. Sarah roots through her purse for the legal papers that Tori has FedExed her. Here, she says, offering the envelope. Miss Merriweather, clutching the bag to her chest, won't take it. Philip stands there unhelpfully. Sarah unfolds the letter and holds it in front of Miss Merriweather's face. Go away, the woman says. Give me the bag, says Sarah. Miss Merriweather stomps on Sarah's foot. Sarah gasps as much from shock as from pain, but the pain is considerable. Give me the bag. She tries to wrest it from Miss Merriweather, but the old woman slips away. With a yowl, she darts forward and kicks Sarah in the shin. Sarah makes a fist and starts to swing. Miss Merriweather screams and drops the ashes. Philip grabs Sarah right before her punch lands. Sarah looks down at the floor, trembling. Philip squats to pick up Victoria's bag. We are entitled to 40%, he says to Miss Merriweather. If you want to dispute it, talk to the lawyer. Sarah is aware of him leaving, but she's too dazed to move. She has almost punched an old lady. She's never punched anyone before. Miss Merriweather collapses on the armchair, sobbing. Sarah feels she should say something. She wavers at the doorway, but it doesn't matter. Miss Merriweather is off in her own world, sobbing arrhythmically. Sarah turns down the hall and limps after Philip. 
Outside, the air is cool. Cars stop at the light, and a man with a cake box walks across the street. This is how people are supposed to act, carrying cakes across the street, not plastic bags of ashes. Philip Clark is waiting for her. He gives her the bag. Don't worry, you wouldn't have hurt her. It wasn't much of a punch. All right. <clears throat> I want to say a couple things. First of all, it's, it's a huge honor to be at Skylight. I love this place. Whenever I'm in town, I come here. Um, as you know, these kinds of places um, are endangered species, so we have to support independent bookstores. It's, uh, it's, it's all we, you know, you don't know what you got till it's gone type of thing. Um, we're experiencing that in New York. We've lost, uh, yeah, many bookstores of late, and it's very sad, and it's uh, wonderful to see a group of people actually interested in listening to people read things that people have written. So um, I also wanted to talk about Akashic a little bit, because uh, there's always something, there's always something, like, there's always like a thread. What you're, Johnny Temple, who's the editor uh, at Akashic, um, has a really specific mind, and so there's always a thread to the stuff that he publishes, and like any sort of great boutique record label or whatever, it's it's usually that's that's the way that they operate. So um, I'm honored uh, to be with you and uh, to be on Akashic. So getting to my book, um, this is the third book in a uh, trilogy <laughs> of uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's a genre thing. You know, and it's a noir kind of dystopian thing. And uh, this is the final installment of this. A lot of people, this is the kind of, you know, it's a genre thing. So people get shot in the face a lot and stuff like that. So it, yeah. Well, you know, and then and then there's a, and then I, what's, what's always a bummer with these readings is that I can only read from like the very beginning. Because then stuff starts to happen that I don't want y'all to know about because I want y'all to buy the book. So I'm just going to have to jump in here and do some, read some, kind of skip around just for some textural stuff. The main character uh, is a nameless veteran um, who has all kinds of problems. Um, he's got OCD, he's got uh, PTSD, he um, uh, can't remember his name. Um, and he's returned to the town of his birth, which is New York which has been uh, devastated by some sort of unspecified cataclysm. Um, so he, uh, in, these, in the previous two books, we've been following him trying to survive. So, <clears throat> from here on out, it's going to get grim, then grimmer, then it will all stop. And it's going to hurt. It's going to be marrow-level pain every moment of the way down. The urban splatter, once known as the greater New York City area, is mortally wounded, defaced, irreparable. Those with means, be it state or corporate, rebuild the environs according to their whim. For the rest, we shuck and jive and parry and jab and do what we can to stay upright. We watch new structures bloom from the rubble of dead landmarks. 
Why we still press forward is a righteous head-scratcher, but press forward we do. Blessed be the hopeful, because they are cursed. Blessed are the most wretched. Allah be praised, or perhaps despite his best efforts, yes, I'm still on my hustle in this tar pit. Still got that Purell, TM, in steady supply, keeping me, keeping me squeaky, body and spirit. Still got my pills, keeping my heart steady jacking. Still got various chrome, allowing a man to rest easy. And still got my system. By its rules, I am guided and kept. I track a Chinese Humvee clone as it bounces up Church Street, wispy dudes in white chem suits hanging simian off the back. I'm ignored, and that's a positive plus. As the hummy is enveloped by the low ochre fog, I meditate on the system, capital S. In the realm of the spiritual, you might view the system as a set of suggestions for negotiating movement so as to maximize the harmonic. Left turns specifically and strictly prior to 11 a.m. Frequent and vigorous cleansing with Purell, TM. Essential for rational thought and behavior. On a scientific tip, we can observe the system like aspects of quantum physics only after we have become aware of its behavior, weaving matter with dimensional units, time, and physical space, creating a tight braid, a double helix, within which, within which is encoded the logic of all things, all structures, all other so-called systems, be they organic, be they organic. I lost that thread. My eyelid spasms. I touch the hard bump in the back of my neck, my platinum pearl. Could it be growing? I whisper to it, talk to the thing, my constant companion. Gonna cut you, cupcake. Dig you out. Believe that. I flex tough on the bastard, but never doubt the raw. I lose sleep over the sophisticated nanomechanics lodged in the base of my skull. Peeping your narrator... What does a man see? Dark chocolate flesh pulled tight, shrouded in a trim suit, coat and hat, Auschwitz skinny, surgical gloves, procedure mask, anywhere from 35 to 50 age being impossible to pinpoint as we careen towards the end of this fucked up epoch. We're starved and insane, scrabbling at scorched earth, wrestling over tiny bones. Look deeper and you'd see my mother in there. The Filipino tinge, but to most, black is black is black. In this climate, human skin doesn't heal like it used to, so the split upper lip I wear is the result of damage inflicted years ago, a loop of re-injury, always moist with fresh pink tissue. Grind northbound, shaking it off, got my Purell out on automatic. Eyes strafing the black glass of the Millennium Hotel, WTC1V3.0 to my back, vibing wrong, vibing too tall, past a low wall of sandbags, armored cars, white shuttle buses sporting Skanska logos, dodging a manhole, erupting terracotta steam, drones in lemon hazmat gear. Dip my hat at the Chinese boys flanking the gate, one of whom commences whistling a Christmas tune. See no evil, kids. I'll settle up with their boss later for the short-term rental and associated cleanup costs. Pausing now on the corner of Godforsaken Barclay and Church Street, I pull down the mask and flame up a Chinese lucky strike. 
it helps with the stench. Swap out used plastic gloves for fresh, squinting skyward at the, ho- at the helicopters, always with the helicopters, as I apply the necessary Purell TM. Suggestion of a light source through the heavy orange cloud cover would indicate approximately 5 in the p.m. Suck three fast lungfuls, plop a blue pill on my tongue, replace my mask, and with this, I am one fine evening closer to death. I call myself Dewey Decimal. Johnny might have put us together because they're all about cities. I mean, oh, if this is L.A. and that's that's New York after the apocalypse, this is mainly about New York art scene in the 80s. So they're all yeah. very based Urban. in the... Yeah. In, based yeah. in the... Yeah. 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 Probably so. Yeah. He's always got some Who sort knows? of logic. <laughs> so should we talk about anything? I don't know. What's the format? <laughs> I don't know. Shall yeah. we? Shall we discuss something? Um, why don't we find out what you guys do for a living? For <laughs> yeah. No, seriously, are there writers in the in the crowd? No writers. No, they they're just too sure. So what are you doing out? Oh, you're a writer. Okay. Yeah. Because otherwise, what are you doing out on a Thursday night? Right. You're reading. Right. Are there readers in the crowd? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, hey. Yeah. There's there's three there are three readers I out of um what I have found I may be wrong but I, I teach writing at USC I've taught there for for 15 years graduate program like an MFA thing what I have found is that writers do not read have you found that that's really? that's, that's a Huge mistake. Yeah. Huge Not reading. At UCLA, yeah. uh, Oh, really? <laughs> they don't. Yeah. Read. That's weird. I'm why, telling why you. Do, why are they writing if they don't? All read? they talk about are movies. Like when we talk, yes. you know, where if I if I if I refer to any book, a, a, you know, dead writer, living writer, a, you know, bestseller, except for the Shades of Grey thing, they know that one. They've heard of it. Uh, <laughs> there was a movie. Yeah. Wait, they're in the graduate program, and they don't. They like are so? in them and they, uh, I don't know if this is interesting to talk about, but uh, they never heard of any of it, and they just want to, uh, you know, the, their, their analogies are always with films or with TV programs. What's the age group? What are we talking about? 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, you know, there's like a oh, lot so of... Okay. You, you must attract people that love... Yeah, that's all people want to do yeah. is they're sitting yeah. in fucking intelligence over here writing their script. <laughs> <laughs> right? Isn't that sad? <laughs> Well, face I mean, it, I, even... I, I have my scripts, you know. Uh-huh. <laughs> That's funny. I, my, my friends read. They do? Yeah. 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 That's no, good. Yeah. yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's because of New York. Maybe New, New Yorkers. Yeah. Uh, high school yeah. girls read. Yeah. Oh, they yeah. do? You teach high school? There's a young... Yay. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because when we were kids, that wasn't even a that wasn't even a category. Dudes had like the girls had Judy Bloom, which mm-hmm. was amazing. Mm-hmm. Dudes had like The Hobbit and shit. We were we were hurt and yeah. it was like we had freaking you know it was like Gandalf and stuff. And you, 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 I was just I was always I was always a little jealous because like the V C Andrews stuff that looked really interesting. I could never I could never get you know 
be seen reading that though at that at that the age. The Hobbit doesn't teach you much about sex. That's kind of that's the Hobbit is no, yeah, which is why. Really, and then you start to manifest it in weird ways, yeah. like you're playing D and D, and you're like you see a naked <laughs> elf girl. Like tells you how it is. Right. It's kind of it's much more useful. It's, it's as, totally as, real. As a, as a, yeah, that's true. But I want that's got to be something. I love the Hobbit. I must say so. It's like the Old Testament. It's like yeah. Sauron begat well, Saul. It, it, yes, so yeah. it, it teaches you that. Right. <laughs> so there you go. Yeah. You need, you need an Old I Testament too. Yeah. That, the Old Testament doesn't teach you really about sex too much, except no. for what not to do. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, when I do these readings, I, I like mark up my books like this. That's, do, you, that's... do you usually do that? Or? No, this is my book. I touched it. <laughs> is that because you just like I'm you touched. you just like you just went over and over and over till it was super? You just knew it was super awesome because I I'm, when I'm reading it to read typos? stuff. Ugh, I yeah, I'm, no, I don't find typos, but I'm like, what the fuck did I write? I'm like, yeah, why no. did I do that? I know. I had. I'm like that was that was no. I have the same thing. Also, I, that won't work in a like live context. I go over it and over it with every publisher. I mean, this is the first time I published with Akashic, but yeah. I rewrite the thing so much I rewrite on the galleys I rewrite yeah. after the galleys I'm just constantly rewriting they beg me to stop they oh. threaten me because it costs them money every time right. they have to but change don't you thing. get bored uh, I get suicidal I mean oh. is, yeah, I want to kill myself uh, that's not boring that's out of frustration passionate. no seriously out of frustration yeah. but there's still you know and then I read the thing and you know six months later I say oh Jesus how could I have done this um, I think that's the idea right yeah uh, yeah hopefully you're getting better so when you look back at your own work you're not enamored of it too much yeah you gotta love yourself. Yeah, you gotta love yourself. <laughs> you gotta love yourself. But on the other hand, like you gotta get stuff out, and you gotta get it away from you. Yeah. You know, you gotta be like, go fucking away. Like to my book, go away. You're done. Oh. You know? yeah, you're not I don't want to do that now. No, not now. But I'm saying, you want I'm saying to read it my, and buy life. it, and then later on, yeah, yeah but they I mean, have to like buy it, in your life, like you have to get this, yeah. something out, and then be like, yeah, I'm done with that. Yeah. And at a certain point, you gotta just sort of let it go. I don't know. I always found that. Maybe a little too. That's because I might be a little lazier than what we're discussing. That's just maybe laziness on my part. Maybe. On oh, a four-year-old. Four you kind of have a four-year-old child, four-year-old which are, is like four-year-olds are like you got to But you, I mean, you know. well, I, there are lots of typos. <laughs> my, I, I haven't found any typos in here, but I, I did find like two sharplies within like. Three pages, and I was, you know, I was like, yeah, oh. there's, you know, and this, I, this has been, I've been working on this on and off for like years, and I mean, it's like, it's not like I whip them out, right? And they're still like, right? Yeah, 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 no, it's true. I, I, that was what I did. I, I, when I was reading out, I just edited out as sharply, right? Yeah, do you need to be in the space that you're writing about? Um, for example, I kind of needed to be in New York City in a certain place hmm. when I was writing. But do you need to be in L.A. to... No, I just need to be in my car. I, <laughs> I sit you in, my, in my... You, you ride in your car? 
I write in my car. Yeah, oh, wow. I mean, I have a, I have a house. I have an. There's a room in it that's my office, and then there are other rooms. And my kids have grown up and left, and so. Are you that okay. character who rented the car? Who? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh no 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 no! I, I should be talking about those the the panhandlers actually my friend my best friend is a public defender and I mean this is literally what they say they won't move because that's where they bank <laughs> so I mean that, that's how much a Beverly Hills panhandler makes uh, but no I'm not that character but I knew that character um, but yeah it's just weird because I can't uh, uh, focus really I think. Mm. Unless I'm in a really enclosed space, like mm, the yeah. tomb probably is going to be next. You're going to write uh, in your, when you're dead. You can just write in your yeah, little... Yeah, be great. I'll, I'll keep writing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. so I, I go sit in my car and my husband keeps saying someday the neighbors are going to call the cops and I'll be the crazy lady with the hat. Yeah. Um, but that's how it works. I mean, enclosed spaces. I, I like. I go to a particular place that's very, very noisy. I put on headphones and I listen to the same piece of minimalist music. And I can't write any other way than to do that. And it has to be in public, otherwise I can't sit at home. And it's like, it feels weird. You're an exhibitionist. <laughs> no, Here I am. you want people to see you right. That's absolutely not true. That's absolutely not true. Because I'm, I'm surrounded by du- no, 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 no. I'm surrounded by you, where you don't in this area. Tell people you're a writer. No, you. in the space yeah. that I'm in, I'm surrounded by douchebags who are trying to show people that they're writers, and I'm definitely not that guy. I'm kidding. I know, but but, it, <laughs> but when you go to Intelligentsia and Silver Lake, and you see all these people with their screenplays. And I'm like, how many people can be really like with with really? Does everyone have a MacBook Air that they're sitting writing their fucking? Screen? Yeah, okay. everybody does. Not yeah. to disparage to, that I've done that too. <laughs> <laughs> We've gone to. I, know, into, and a I know, I know. I'm not. I know, it's true. Yeah. 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 Musician. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You have to. Yeah, well, what else is there? Yeah. Everybody can publish a book, and I got to tell you something. The self-publishing thing, I used to think, such a bad idea, such a bad idea. The last, my last book was published in 2007, and between then and this book came out last October, uh, in seven years the whole landscape has changed so much that How I would so? no longer tell uh, anybody to make self, to leave self-publishing as their last resort but what if people are la- they but don't want to do shit t- I mean it's hard to they don't want they're lazy and they don't want to like do the social media stuff or whatever they need to do to put well, no, I mean, the people who self Have you ever read any... Do you guys buy anything that's self-published? Do you even know... I, I, this is like a, sti- a bit of a stigma. I, I mean, and this is totally not fair. You don't read. Oh. <laughs> oh, I see. Okay. <laughs> no, it's just it's any the movies it's that are based on self-published books? <laughs> no, and with all... With with respect... I mean, I but there's something about a self-published... Maybe the stigma is, is changing. 
but it's it, that that it's sort of like you couldn't get it published anywhere else, so therefore it's self-published, which isn't a, which is totally yeah. But that's uh, the, you know that's that kind true. of thinking is only uh, you know the, the reviewers and right. they're all dead anyway. No, it doesn't fucking matter people to the public. The yeah. 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 So if a book is good, people will read it, and yeah. if it's yeah. not, I but it's got to be available. I think it's just this. It's just it's trying to promote yourself as hard. So if you have somebody else, nobody's like promoting you anyway. Who's promoting you? Oh. What's that? I mean, we they you paid for us to come out here. Here we are. They they they, 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 they publish your thing. Bucks. They tell you, yeah, but you know, it's, it's more than they know. ran some ads like for yeah. this. Yeah. They and sent them to me. The I, reviews. Then again, people. Yeah. You know, people. I mean, like, I, I'm like, how, how, I mean, Look, the reviews are helpful. Yeah, I have a yeah. I have a record label, and it's totally like DIY style. So I'm sitting there like on fucking like with three different like Instagram accounts. And good. like trying to do, and like you know, calling like my distribute. So I get it. I totally. I mean, you know, there. It, and there's a lot you can do, obviously, but it's a fucking lot of work. Yeah. So much well, you want to do that. It's a lot of work anyway. But. It, it is. It's a. Yeah. It is. So what do you think has changed since uh, since you? Uh, social media has become so much bigger and so much easier to use and. Uh, Mm. And so, and there are so many fewer print or radio shows. You know, like book reviews are have all gone. Yeah. Uh, radio shows. You know, where, for example, in LA, KPCC, Larry Mantle used to uh, do book, you know interviews with writers. He doesn't do that anymore. Right? He, he only do, or he doesn't do fiction anymore. Uh, so, so many of those are gone. And instead, social media has uh, opened up. So you don't need to get a review in the LA Times anymore. Do you guys ever read a book review in the LA Times anyway? Yeah. Do you even know there's a book review in the LA Times? Isn't it? That's a big fucking deal to get a review in the LA Times, right? Nah. No, but oh well. well, But I mean, I think that don't people say that it's a big deal? I have. I don't know. Anyway, so. I don't want to make enemies. In no, no, no. You don't. No, you, no. Nobody's, nobody's disparaging no, the LA no. Times, but you know, yeah. I think it's, just, I think it's a different scene in New York. So I mean, I think like there is just definitely like if you get a review in the New York Times, it means a lot. Oh yeah, because the New York yeah. Times is the only one that means anything. Oh, well, maybe that's what you. Right? Yeah, but that's so, our hometown newspaper, so. Right. We can agree that that's a better paper. Oh, trust me. <laughs> I mean, just in general, I'm not talking about the book review part. I'm just saying in general, like the New York Times is kind of. You know, yeah. right in there. Well, now we're just meandering. Do you guys want to hear our life stories, or do you want to tell us your life stories, or what do you want to hear about? We're, I'm, yeah. They, well, I mean, uh, sorry. <laughs> no, no, no. All right, there you go, your life story. Well, I started out, in, and this is why we talk about DIY stuff, I started out in punk rock bands, totally nepotistic style. One of the guys I was in a band with was the, happened to be the publisher, Johnny Temple, who wound up being... So, and we were in D.C., we were in hardcore bands, and we were on a record label called Discord Records. Now, Discord Records did this thing where it was like a 50-50 split the contract was like a paragraph and so my friend Johnny basically 
designed yeah. his this the model for this the business model for this uh, Akashic books on that label. So I think that that's really exciting. I think that that's a really good way to do business, and it's transparent and it's honest, and you fucking make money. You make money. Did the label make money? The music label? Yeah. yeah. So I have a label now where I do the same shit. Mm-hmm. That was your life story. That was John. <laughs> no, I was just trying to. I was trying to think of what was relevant to the thing. I was just trying to think of what was relevant. Well, actually, to the, I have a question. I was. I'm. You've got so much interesting stuff. I, you both. You got. I don't, you um, no, but I have a because I also I do a uh, I have a arts um, program for families raising kids with disabilities, and one of the things yeah. that I'm passionate about is changing the public perception of disability. So I have this blog called Broken and Woken. And Which I, is really good. Um, really cool. I interview people I meet through disability and through the arts about w- what their definition of disability is and, um, and you know, stuff like that. Anyway, I wanted to... I emailed Nathan because I read yeah, one of right. these and I was like, I want to know why your main character is... I, I love that you have such a disabled main character mm. and I wanted to know what your thinking was behind this. This guy is based on sort of like a, a mashup of a bunch of people that I've known, but in particular my cousins, who for the most part, unfortunately live in like sort of rural Washington state very much on the edge um we're my family my side like my nuclear family is sort of like we're the like oh we're fancy and we're in New York and we're like Mm. already people and we have gay friends but they're like you know real American you know out there in Spokane and they're doing their thing um military families um super fucked up from it a lot of crystal meth a lot of you know abuse of different things and and a lot of guns um a lot of uh just a lot of pain a lot of sadness so i i've learned a lot from them and uh and then there was this one homeless guy that i knew in dc who was named chicago because <laughs> he said he was from chicago and um he just always was dressed beautifully and i don't know how he managed it and he was, would wander, like he'd sort of just, you know, completely out of his mind. But he would always be just completely turned out, you know. Mm-hmm. He looked like uh, Desmond Decker or some like Jamaican, you know, kind of. Anyway. So nice. that's, that's yeah. but, the, but the disability, I mean, you know, and the way that, I, had to, I mean, not to be boring, but it's just like the way that this country deals with veterans and, and people. I mean, it's just a disgrace. Yeah. My, my, my sister worked at Walter Reed for a long time and it's a it's a it's a it's a fucking disgrace how dare we you know treat our veterans like this yeah and and not it's not really improving no god no it's not no and in and mental health in general i mean you know it's not it's not improving it's 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 uh, getting worse there 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 are right now there are less uh psychiatric hospitals in the united states than there were in 1850 yeah, I mean they we've just shut them down. They shut them down, and so you naturally send them off to to jail, right? Yeah. Or they or or they just cut them loose, and then they're on the street, and you're you know you you know no, and then they go people to jail. Are, and then they, they exactly it's that cycle of like sort of you know so yeah. it's it's a tremendously sad situation that I'm sure you know arises in all of our books. 
In different ways. In different ways. I mean, I, I like through working in disability, I kind of consider everybody disabled. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> it's like, but um, but some of us are luckier than others. Uh, yeah. But you know, speaking of disability, this is something as a as a foreigner. I'm an American citizen, by the way. Uh, but uh, as somebody who sees it from the outside, there's something about American culture that's fascinating and I think unique. And that is that Americans refuse to accept defeat or disability yeah. uh, or loss. If a loss may be something temporary or it may be something that you will overcome. They love people to overcome things, but God forbid you don't. So, for example, you know, you lost, this guy just got shot, they just shot your son, some cop, you know, in a park, and the first thing the family is supposed to, they, they, they want to talk about to the families, and how is the town pulling together to overcome this, you know, yeah. like, and it's sort of the, the making lemonade out of lemon mentality, right? So you say that you think uh, everybody's disabled, which is very true, but there are people who are more disabled. And the idea that, well, this is not a disability, it's just a difference, I think is a very American thing. Other parts of the world, people deal, or at least in more traditional older cultures, people deal with loss very differently. And in a way it's good, and sometimes it's not. The thing with American... Uh, lemon out of uh, lemonade out of lemon mentality I think is that you never actually accept or come to terms with these kinds of laws such as disability uh, you're constantly trying to overcome it so yeah. to speak or deny it yeah and, and and that can cause a great deal of, uh, of, uh, of uh, emotional hardness in a person you know, not mourning things enough. Not grieving and not really yeah. just accepting how painful and, uh, you know, just, just yeah. devastating right. life can be. Yeah. yeah, I agree. I mean, I totally agree. Uh, it's one of the reasons I started Extreme Kids, because it's not a therapy center. It's just a place where you can just be your own right. completely weird. I mean, so, you know, my son is just incredible. I mean, he, he can't process language. He can't walk. I mean, he's not going to overcome that mm-hmm. but he you know has at times like incredible love of life mm-hmm. and really touches the people around him so you know I, I would do anything to have him be able to walk and talk but the idea is I mean I think it is a more of a like you have to create places where people can just accept each other as they are and not always be trying to improve. Yeah. Which just drives me nuts. Improve, overcome, become better. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. Uh, yeah. Who says? What doesn't kill you It can, it can bitter you. Yeah. It can bitter you and make you miserable. But I mean, if you, extend, like, if you extend this to politics, yeah. for instance, domestic politics, something like Ferguson, we got to come together. we got to, like, get together on this and, like, come, wait, come together where? Come together here. Come together th- where? Where physically do we come together? And what do we fucking do when we come? What? What exactly? Yep. Who yep. moderates that conversation? Who are the people having that conversation? That's another weird American thing. Yeah, it's like we just, just gotta really just sort of. Yeah. It's all about like you know, sort of like. 
Well, if you hug Everybody each other, in town. Okay. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, you know, this is like after 9-11 in yeah. New York, everybody was fucking hugging each other yeah. and stuff. No, and now, and then everybody was back to, you know, yeah. business like stabbing each other in the, in the back. Yeah. Um, but for a while, we didn't. It was. It there, was beautiful. There was, there was a lot of like guitar playing weird. on the stoop and coming together around the guitar was nice. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. But I'm saying but, this. Yeah, yeah. It's, I yeah. understand what you're saying. This American thing where you can this this idea that the, you can defeat anything just yeah. by sheer will, and that if you don't, you're somehow well, that's lazy. Why we, in many ways, in many ways, is what has made this country great. This yeah. refusal to accept limitations. Uh, uh, this is why I believe, I truly well, believe, and this that's is, why this I is like also, this character I have, is because I have, he listen. is completely limited. I mean, like, that, I think that you find that in, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I, that's why I liked Thank your you. book, is plus everything's just crumbling. Thank like, you. you're, nobody's saving New York. This, this is the <laughs> most, this country is super fucked up. My wife is Swedish, right? And I would argue that they're, they're dealing now with the, the, the third biggest political party is, is the fascist party. And as you know, in, in Europe and in a lot of the world, fascism is like on the rise. And a lot of it has to do with like the immigration policies that Sweden put implemented in the 70s, kind of trying to be groovy. And they're suddenly like, wait a second, who are all these brown people who are sort of, you know, so it's, it, and whereas in the U.S., we have a different set of problems. There's no way that you can in 110 years get over the trauma of something like slavery, so, so, you know, it's fucked up, but it's much less fucked up than any place else in the world. Exactly. I, so this is why this is why I'm saying, and also we're 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 like people always say this, but like we're we're like 14 years old in the scope of yeah, like being yeah, a country. Yeah. This will be the country where we figure shit out on a level, especially to do with like racial issues. This, you mean the dystopian? The, uh, no, no, the, <laughs> the United States. Oh, oh, oh. I strongly believe this. Be, living, I live half the time in Europe, and I see the attitudes, and I see sort of how it's shit is so clannish, and shit is so ingrained. It's like Ottoman Empire stuff. You're going all the way back, crazy. So, and we don't really have that per se. Right. We've got horrible baggage, but I, I truly believe that this will be the place where we. Do. That's a bit utopian, but. Oh well, this is so nice to hear. You, I mean, you, I just don't. Oh yeah, no, yeah, no. I mean, it's 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 all. What can you say? You know, yeah. I think it's a grab bag. Where is it going to be? Germany, Sweden? No, maybe like some some the moon. <laughs> yeah, maybe Atlantis. But I mean, you know, yeah, yeah. Maybe it, you know, who knows? Um, I mean, is it going to be in 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 Iran? Is it going to be you know? Where is it going to be? Well. I just, it's, I just like your optimism that it is going to be somewhere. I guess that's what I was saying. Feels nice. It, it I, has like, I don't to really be have... or we perish, and then right. Well, that, yeah, I just feel so like... fuck it. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm saying, I'm just yeah, yeah. I'm extending the what what you had said into more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't even know what I'm talking about anymore. Oh, there you go. <laughs> um, no, I think uh, uh, the guy, uh, I forget his name, but the creator of The Simpsons, who. who Matt Groening, yeah. yeah, died recently. Yeah, I don't know. He he had been to Iran or he had heard or something, and he said once uh, in Iran, people make uh, grief a way of life, meaning that they hang on to it, and they, you know, somebody, your marriage fails, and um, it's the end of the world. You know, you're you're just mm-hmm. 
as yeah. this gentleman would say, right. fuck, not that I say that, but he says that a lot. You know, you're fucked for, forever, right? Your business fails and you are done. And not just in Iran, in most uh, traditional countries. Right. And um, what's fantastic about this country, and, and you don't appreciate it unless you have seen the alternative, is that there are always second chances. You know, you, you change your name, you move across country, you move states, you know, things just, you can start over a thousand times. And in part, it's because people are given permission to reinvent themselves, and in part, it's because memories are short. You don't hold on to the past. All you have to do is be contrite about something that you messed up, and people Americans love the word contrite. And if they are contrite enough, that, that's, that's it. So you start over. The downside of that, though, is, uh, you know, having these short memories is that you don't learn much from the past. Uh, and have I think... I'm sorry? Have been the whole country? Absolutely not. Um, in Europe? In Germany? In Iran? I'm not talking about politically. I'm talking about individuals, you know, in 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 yeah, your I know, I know you're talking personal about life, yeah. right? Um, and uh, yes, for example, now back to my book. Um, one of the central questions in the book is uh, the Iranian Jews. I don't know if you guys do you know any Iranians in yeah. LA? Yeah. yeah, yeah. All right, so not in LA. Yeah, I know, but the Iranian Jews are the oldest community in diaspora, so they've been in Iran consistently for 3,000 years. And they lived in ghettos and they were persecuted and massacred and etc. For, for thousands of years, literally, up until really the 1960s. Huh? Um, but throughout that entire time, it, there was a certain way of life and a certain culture. And part of it was that you didn't need contracts, you uh, didn't have to resort to go in court about most things. People dealt with each other based on, uh, uh, on this uh, the, this principle, this thing called albiru, which uh, means uh, roughly uh, your family's good name, not only your own, because the family name is inherited too. So, like something that your great grandfather did, if it was bad, will taint you as well, and if it was good, will shed some positive light on you. And um, therefore, something like running a Ponzi scheme was really not possible. You wouldn't do that because you couldn't literally could would be driven out of town for good and you so would your children. Then we came out here and in a matter of 30 years, just during this recession, we had uh, three, four, five major Ponzi schemes running that devastated the community. Uh, one of them, the guy was called the Bernie Madoff of Beverly Hills. And so one question in the book is, how is it that we changed so much in such a short period of time? What was it that changed us? Um, and uh, in part, the answer, I mean, I wrote a book, every, every, every book that I write, I think most writers, starts with a question that you, and you're trying to figure out the answer to, and you write the book in order to explore, find out, find the answer. And the answer that I came up with is that because we figured that in this country, the past doesn't stay with you, that people, that you, don't need to learn from the past. And so you screw a whole community up, three, four, five years go by, people forget, and you start over. 
or people don't forget in LA you'll just move to Seattle and and you start over and your past your reputation your Aberu doesn't follow you um, so that's what I'm talking about a community people learning from from the past or remembering things. let me just but let me just put and, and I think that's I totally agree that's 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 fantastic um, but like if your grandfather fucking stole somebody's goat and all this stuff and so you were cursed because of that isn't that the cause basically when you come down to it that kind of clannishness for just about half of the wars in Africa right now I mean you're talking about this sort of like stuff where well, it's like you know that thing is commandment you know the ten commandments yeah. you've heard of them right the fifth commandment says literally I am a jealous God, and if you, I don't know, piss me off or you do something to that effect, I will avenge myself against five generations of your children. That's in the Fifth Commandment. Look it up on Wikipedia, I swear. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah, no doubt. So it's that old, this idea of, uh, uh, you oh, know, yeah. uh, these tribal wars. It's and older. So on. Yeah. So what I'm saying is that there are many, many, many downsides to that way of thinking, and one of them is, yeah, you know, Africans and uh, uh, or in the Muslim world, the Sunnis and Shias killing each other. Yeah, and Tutsis uh, and Hutsis and everything. Yeah, or gangs in in the United States. Well, yeah, but so there are advantages and disadvantages, yeah. both to the American, you know, lemonade uh, out of lemon thing, and um, and to the traditional worlds, you know, to yeah. India's caste system, for instance, you know, that's. Uh, one byproduct of mm. that way of thinking. Yeah. What have you guys read that's been good lately? Yeah? Um, Christopher Moore. I love Christopher Moore. I'm just, I'm eating up all of his books. Oh, really? Yeah. They're, they're dark and hilarious. Kind of one of the only authors that makes me laugh out loud. Like, I'm oh, really? Yeah. What's a good I one to start with? I've never read it. A Dirty Job. Dirty Job? Okay. It's amazing. It's crazy, imaginative, and visual. Great. And just moves along really fast. It feels conversational, but it's really profound. Yeah. Oh, that sounds great. Okay. Can I make a suggestion? Yeah. Shirley Jackson is one of the greatest American writers of the 20th century and I can't believe she wrote like The Haunting of Hill House and, and, and The Lottery which was she was most famous but also we've always lived in the castle and, and, and just these um, unbelievable works of art that are also still like Paige Turner she's, she, she, she's, she's incredible and I would, assume, I would assume they'd have some of her stuff here um, we, uh, I mean, if you really want to get, if you really want to freak yourself out, the haunting of Hill House is super scary. Um, we have always lived in the castle. It's just sort of gothic and weird and awesome. It's all very modern. She's 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 amazing and she's very very underappreciated, I think. Yeah. What else, you guys? Since you read, you pretend you read. <laughs> <laughs> She's my oh, scary yeah. teacher. Who's for? Heard about that? That one sounds yeah. yeah. She's kind yeah. of a nut, though. 
She is. She's a good friend of mine. So, so. Uh, sorry about that. But she's nuts. She sure. she she took to Facebook. I don't know even her friend, a Facebook friend. But you know, during the Israeli Israel's bombing of uh, Gaza, was it last summer? I don't know. It's it's always happening. Yeah. So. No. So she just went nuts on Facebook. And I wasn't even posting stuff about that. So right. I'm glad that it's a good book, but... Right. Uh, okay. Conscious <laughs> <laughs> Love is a good book. What's that? It's uh, the lemonade book for relationships. <laughs> oh. What's it called? Conscious, Conscious love. love. Conscious Loving. It's either Guy or Gay Hendricks. Cool. What about unconscious loving? Yeah. <laughs> Stumbling. Yeah. Yeah. Look around. <laughs> this is about unconscious loving, guys. <laughs> um, I'm 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 pushing the uh, Mamadou Slali book wherever I go. That I he's a, a prisoner in Guantanamo yeah. Bay, and it's the most amazing prison writing. It's it's just super crazy. It's incredibly good. It's and it's. It's yeah. it's just inc- it's a miracle that it got out and it's published and it's um it's also who published it? It's a work of literature. I mean, it's actually really good. Like, I was like, I I bought it because I'm a, a prison literature is one of my things. I I'm really inspired by prison literature because I mean, it, it is this kind of way of achieving freedom. Um, and and it, it, so, but I just didn't want to. I knew he was. He's he's been held illegally there for six years. So it's just like I didn't really want to <laughs> start reading it just because I was like, oh, you know, just afraid I would get so depressed. Yeah. Um, but it's it's actually you start reading. I mean, you just it's so good, yeah. and it's actually there's a lot that's funny and warm in it. Like he's, I mean, there's. It, obviously, it's awful, um, and, and it's you know a disgrace yeah. and everything else. But it's it's just an incredible piece of work, and um, and and is somewhat invigorating in that he hasn't lost his mind. Mm. And there is there's so many people on his side that got this thing out of the prison that it was published that it's being really you know it it was the front page of the New York Times Book yeah, Review, which means yeah. something. Um, yeah. So, so it's a there's it gives you kind of courage even in the midst of your your anguish over uh, his fate, and hopefully that will help him finally get out. There's renewed hope that he'll get out this year. But anyway, it's very good book. It's it's called the Guantanamo Bay Diary of. Um, there's the, the the thing is there's another book with a very similar title. So his name is Mamadou Slali, S L A H I. I don't know if that's it. Yeah, I think it is. Does this publisher have like editors that work with you and, and read? Yes, that's yeah. a good. This book mm-hmm. I wrote like when came, you know, like I tried to. It, it's like continuously didn't work for so long, and the characters are all the same, and the story's been the same, and I, I kept on going ah, and I. I so I put it down. I go fuck it, and that sorry. Um, but then, like if you know, like he says that I do. I mean, the characters kept on book. coming back, so I wanted to. I was like, ah, it's so like I just want to get this. You know, I want to get this thing out. I want to. Yeah, you know, like right. I couldn't give up on it because I really uh, have a very strong relationship with these characters, and um, and so I gave it to Akashic after uh, they took. You know, the, the Mercury Fountain did well, so I was like, well, will you 
look at this. And Ibrahim yeah, told Ibrahim me there's a, there's a letter that this estranged husband writes to Sarah who tells this tale. And it used to be, she just didn't want to read the letter in the same way that I didn't want to pick up the mental issues. So she, it used to kind of, she used to open it like halfway through the book. And, um, and he was like, that's yeah, kind of like, it's a kind of a letdown when she finally opens it there. So put it at the front. And so, which changes, like you have to rewrite everything because she has this piece of knowledge that she didn't have earlier. But it, it, it was like, it oh! Yeah. You know, it, so, you know, this, he totally, yeah. it was just this thing that I could not have seen. It was this structural thing, and it it got rid of all of these really embarrassing, horrible, expositional things that I'd been struggling, you know. That's great. Yeah, so he's great. Yeah. yeah and, and, and having said you know, that, they also yeah. have this attitude where they're like, are you, are you happy? And, you, and yeah. if you're like, yeah, they're like, cool. <laughs> There's just this and this and this is sort of like just, you know, you know, yeah. grammatical shit. But, well, but on the other hand, they will they'll they'll tear it apart. But they kind of they kind of make it's put they put it in your lap a little bit, which is great, which is important, I think. My mother's a novelist, historical fiction, and she publishes with Martin. And, hmm. and I got a you know, nice advance for a book that was you know, new editor, new editor, new editor. Bless change your sweet. it, change it, change it. Yeah. Um, Three years go by, right? And so here's the thought of self-publishing. I left the book before it, yeah. before yeah. these people got involved. Mm-hmm. What do you know about me? Yeah. yeah, but there's not a lot of ads. There's not. They're not doing anything for her really, except no. asking her to make the book more marketable. Oh yeah, no, she should. Yeah. yeah. So I'm just sort of interested in these kind of press. You know, so Sophie Burnham. Is self-publishing her. This is a friend of another friend of ours. Yeah. whose mother is a novelist. She's self-publishing her first book. I think it works really well for established right. novelists, yeah. and um, because you know she's been she's got an audience. People, I mean, she's, she knows how to write. You know, and you know she's having a great time with it. I mean, like she's like yeah. yeah. So it, I think I'll it tell works. you what it is. Uh, Publishers, the, the the model is the business model is that at least nine out of the ten books that they publish fails, and that that includes uh, uh, books that they give very large advances for. Yeah. So, and that's the traditional model. That's the traditional assumption with the big houses. So, but they don't know which ones will fail and which ones will succeed, no. except for the ones that they pick out and they do a lay down and they basically literally buy a space on the New York Times list uh, by doing certain yeah. mm. stuff that everybody knows about and uh, still is supposed to be sort of a secret. So the New York Times actually writes their articles in the New York Times about how the list is is paid for, um, but uh, when you talk to uh, the publishers, nobody heard of this. No, we don't know what it is. But anyway, so that's the big problem. And so they may even give a nice advance to your mother, Norton, for example. I was with Harcourt for, for my other books. They may give a, a nice advance, but then they basically abandon the book. It's entirely up to you, right? Which is one reason that I think that self-publishing is really not that different in terms of the kind of support that you get um, from uh, traditional publishing, right? So I think especially for emerging writers, I don't know how many books your mom's published, but especially for emerging writers, the much better way to go is a 
mid-size or, or small house, um, by, and by small I mean one that has enough of a budget that it's not going to go bankrupt before your book gets published, because that also happens. You know. But a mid-size or small house where they actually stand behind books and try to, to like mm. Akashi, yeah. try to uh, promote every book that, uh, that, that they publish. So uh, the, the downside of that is that they don't give a big advance up front. Some of them don't give any advance up front. So, you know. I mean, Akashi gives sort of a symbolic advance, and it's very small. But you know how much how much different what what is it what amount of money is going to make a huge difference in your life? Is it five thousand dollars? Is it ten thousand dollars? Is it? I mean, you know what I mean. So, at what point do you trade off your sort of freedom to? I don't know. It's tough. One of my students sold her book for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars last year. But that would be that would be worth (laughs) trading a cushion. So listen, let me me just compare. I was in a rock band in the nineties. And they signed, after Nirvana fluky, flukily broke, they signed every fucking band with a guitar in it that sort of was remotely associated with Nirvana. And as a result, it, it was like a million dollar advance here, a million dollars. And so you were, you know, I was like, you're like 22 and you're like, yeah. But it's like, it's all sort of a, it's all sort of a smoke and mirrors because it's like a million dollars in theory if is allocated to your um, project if it meets certain criteria, etc., etc. Um, and as a result, the record industry is dead. I mean, it was, they fucked themselves. They, that's their own fault. That's on them. But I'm not complaining because I got to spend the whole 90s sort of wandering in the East Village like, are my songs cool enough? <laughs> you know? And I was living off of like publishing money and advances. I'm not complaining. Yeah, I wouldn't complain. Seven hundred fifty thousand grant. I mean, seven. That's no. That's no joke. No, that's pretty impressive. Take that shit and yeah. then just and then you know self-publish it. Does she um, want to give to my charity? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Can I meet her, please? <laughs> no. No. <laughs> no. This is this is a, this one. Made the indies don't have. They don't have that money. No. That Unless they have like their own private money, family money. No. No, they, I mean, well, my publisher, publisher, my last book was that kind of guy, McAdam Cage, David Poindexter, uh, Family Money. His, his house was in; they were based in San Francisco. It was the most amazing publishing experience anybody will ever have because you know, I mean, he sent me on a 14 city tour. Every place I stayed at was a five star hotel. <laughs> Um, etc. etc. Gave me a very nice advance and all of that. But then the house went bankrupt during the uh, the recession, and he even sold his house to support the house. And even that didn't hold it up. And then uh, he was 56, and he got cancer and died. Oh. So, but as a result, what's happened? You know, when you, once he went into bankruptcy, nobody got paid. None of the writers got paid. Uh, they, uh, uh, you know, it's been years that, like, my, the paperback version of my book was at the printers. It was ready, but it was at the printers for months, and the printers wouldn't release it because they were waiting to get paid by the trustee. It was like, 
you know so that kind of thing you know you can spend a lot of money really quickly like that as David did mm. you know and he was like a trust fund child a ranch and I don't know this and that and um, you can lose it all but I mean I don't think that there, but there, maybe there's a handful of people who actually sat down to write a book because they were like, I'm going to get $750,000 fucking dollars. I just, I mean, maybe yeah. Dan Brown on his second book or something. You know, I don't know. But there's, I just think that there's very, yeah, yeah, otherwise you wouldn't, you just no, wouldn't do it. You can't do it. It's not about that to me. Yeah, screenplays are just, yeah. The window for that shit is in. I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, but people it's write. It's gone. People it's write. already over. Yeah. People think that. That's why. They people don't know. So what do you guys do? What do you do for a living? What do you do at all? Me? He's got a really interesting story. <laughs> 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 no? Nobody wants to say what you do. How can we tell you everything I'm about making, our life? Uh, make a 50 foot dragon. A 50 foot dragon? What, for, a, for an amusement park? No, for art. Oh, you're an artist? Yeah. Oh, 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 okay. Right now it just looks big. But you had to make it. What's that? You had to make it. Yes. Right. Where do you keep it? In my yard. Wherever we keep some bed right? <laughs> Well, I mean. Or they're, or they're broken down cars or whatever. Yeah. 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 You just need a big yeah. space. Yeah. Do you have a cover for it? Like, is it what materials is it? It's going to be cement. You can climb all over Wow. Wow. Well, shall we uh, wrap up, guys? Yeah, I think so. Thank you so much for coming. And Thank you, everybody. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.